It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. Uh, This is sports editor Bill Corey, along with Providence Journal Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch. And uh, today is kind of a sad day, I think, in Rhode Island, especially if you're a baseball fan. As we are recording this, um, the city of Worcester is scheduled to have a press conference and uh, to announce that uh, the Pawtucket Red Sox will be leaving Rhode Island and taking up residence in Worcester in a, uh, in a new stadium. The uh, plan for the stadium is... Uh, is expected to be announced, and there'll be some uh, Paw Sox brass up there as well. I guess it's not um, totally surprising, given how this thing is uh, shaken out over the last weeks and months, Bill, but um, I can't help but think it's a it's a big loss for Rhode Island. Uh, no, Bill, this has been uh, an accumulation of things that really has been years in the running, and it dates back to the mythical poisoning of the well with 38 studios uh, and and the debacle that that was, uh, the total lack of legislative oversight, the incredible loss of money, and really the sort of limited disclosure after the fact. There was no thorough public airing of grievances. Uh, Folks still think that there's more to discover there, and and why wouldn't they think that? There's very little reason to have public trust in government in Rhode Island. It's been um, sort of a a halting, somewhat failing institution for generations now. Uh, And I I think when you try to have a serious discussion about a real project, uh, something that I felt could have been beneficial uh, both to the Paw Sox and to the community at large, uh, those sorts of issues pop up and they obstruct what could have been real progress here. And, you know, for me, as a Rhode Island resident and a baseball fan, someone who spent I don't know how many nights uh, at McCoy Stadium watching the Paw Sox as a kid with my family or now for work, uh, it certainly is a, a sad day for Rhode Island. Yeah, I mean, a lot of special memories for me as well. You know, I'm a Fall River native and, and spent many time, uh, many afternoons and many nights uh going to McCoy Stadium with my dad and my brother um, and friends as I got older and was able to drive. Uh, I was at the uh, Mark Fidrick, uh Dave Rigetti game. I was too. Were you really? Yeah. yeah. We could have done a Twin Bills podcast back then. <laughs> I don't know. I was three. <laughs> I, I might not have had much to contribute that year. But uh, yeah, certainly uh, a special place. Um, you know, lots of great players come I mean, come through. I... Uh, I remember, uh, you know, when I was a kid, my brother and I would uh, get there early and, and lower the the, uh, the sand pails down to get autographs of the players who would, you know, autograph and put them in the bucket. Sure. And uh, one day I got a autograph from some player that I just, I didn't really know or recognize and I couldn't really read the, uh, the autograph. The best I could come up with was Wayne Brooks. So... Whatever, we went home and, you know, we ended up playing with the ball and eventually losing the ball in, in the woods or whatever. And uh, so next year, Wade Boggs makes his uh, <laughs> his debut <laughs> with the Boston Red Sox. Oh, boy. And uh, I said to my brother, Dan, uh, 
I don't think it was Wayne Brooks that signed the ball. I think it's this guy. I think it was so. this guy who had 3,010 hits <laughs> in his career and ended up in the Hall of Fame. Right. But, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think it's, uh, unfortunately, a legislative disappointment here. Um, I think that there was a deal that the, that the team uh, probably uh, was supportive of. That deal was changed. Um and uh, the cost of the deal went up for the team. And, uh, you know, these are business people, and the decision was made that a better deal uh, was out in Worcester. Um, and uh, it looks like that's where they're going to be. Yeah, there was a convergence of things here. Uh, first, the team was negotiating with the state senate and Dominic Ruggiero, and they actually reached a deal that uh, they liked mm-hmm. here. Uh, it was $12 million up front from the owners. They were also going to pay 41 out of $85 million over 30 years. Those were going to be state-issued bonds. Um, so a total investment of $53 million from the ownership group out of 97. That's no insignificant chunk no, of No, it's over half. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I certainly think that the, the owners didn't help their own cause during the first round of discussions when there was talk about moving the team to Providence. Uh, right. That was a much worse deal. Uh, it was something presided over by Jim Skeffington and Larry Lucchino. Uh, Jim Skeffington, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, something that was... It was going to be a bad deal for the state, and, and the outrage was justified, I think, at that point. Um, but this was a different round of discussions. There were different philosophies at play here. Uh, Dr. Charles Steinberg was brought in. They had a listening tour. This current deal was thoroughly vetted in the public. There were hours and hours of public comment uh, in multiple communities, not just Pawtucket. Uh, give credit to Pawtucket's mayor, Don Grebian. He was a tireless advocate Absolutely. For this. Fighting hard for his city. Uh, in my mind, he, out of any politician involved, showed the most leadership the most creativity, uh, the most passion for this. And, and I, I think that's the one thing that's that struck me, Bill, and really disappointed me is just, you know, sort of the the contempt with which people hold the Paw Sox and the, you know, the, the sort of anger that any sort of spending on any project will generate. You know, keep your, keep your filthy hands off my tax dollars. You know, you could pay for this entire project yourself. And, you know, why should you ask me for a dime? Last time I checked, if you walked down the street, you couldn't get someone to itemize the state budget for you and tell you exactly where every single penny of their tax dollars is going to. Um, what you do know is that you pay them, and your streets get plowed, and your trash gets picked up, and you do have some beneficial things like the Providence Performing Arts Center and the Dunkin' Donuts Center and the beaches, which you enjoy every summer. Um, when you have good, functioning, honest government, you can take for granted that your money is going to be put in good places. In Rhode Island, we haven't had that for years and years and decades. And I think you're just seeing that sort of decline, that rot from the inside out, has poisoned projects like this and prevented us from having real adult discussions about making a deal that would have been beneficial for both sides. You know, I would caution you that... um, um you know, when you hear criticisms, I think the the logical reaction from a lot of people is, oh, everyone, everyone's against it. But typically, you know, people who complain are the people who uh, are heard the most because they're doing it the loudest. And, you know, I mean, you can look on social media. There's certainly a lot of people complaining. They don't want their they don't want to spend their, their tax dollars. But there's also a lot of other people who are saying things more along the lines of, you know, this is a Rhode Island institution. It's a place where families go. Uh, there's a lot of good that uh, a baseball stadium 
does. You know, the, the, the Paw Sox themselves will tell you that most of their fans come from Massachusetts. Well, that's a lot of out-of-state dollars that are coming into the state that are not only helping the Paw Sox, but if there was a stadium at a at a you know in a district where there are other developments like restaurants and bars and shops and stuff, that means there would be a lot of out-of-state dollars going to those businesses too. Um, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. No one can tell you exactly where all your tax money goes. And there are many other businesses in the state of Rhode Island who are benefiting from state government, small, medium, large. Uh, you, you made a good point earlier when we were talking before we uh, started the podcast about um, you know money that goes to URI uh, that helps eventually out-of-state people because they come here, they, they get educated, and then they leave. And, uh, you know, they're taking advantage of tax money that goes into the URI budget. And, you know, I'm a proud URI alum, and I and I would certainly, um, you know, uh, sing the praises of URI uh, as an educational institution. Um, but uh, nonetheless, you know, I think, it's, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that Rhode Island is going to look back and say, wasn't it? you know, kind of short-sighted when we let this thing go. Yeah, the invective on both sides, obviously, is highly charged, and it happens to come in an election year. And I think that's a huge part of this as well. Uh, Nicholas Mattiello, the Speaker of the House, barely won his district last time when he was up for re-election. The governor, Gina Raimondo, is in a very tight race to keep her office. And I think that both of them lacked political courage here. They took a very hands-off approach in, in Raimondo's case. In Ruggiero's case, uh, sorry, Mattiello's case, he gutted the original deal that was made with the Senate. He actually passed something that was worse through the state legislature. And I think that was done just for the sake of saying, well, we passed something. We tried. Mm. It wasn't a good faith attempt, but we tried. You know, and, and that's just something that taxpayers are going to look at and they're going to say, well, you know, the, the folks who want to support them will say, well, they tried. They tried to do something. And the folks who don't support them will say, good, they let them go. That's fine. What I've seen in my travels, you know, especially over the last few years covering URI basketball and, and covering the Red Sox this year, is stadiums and arenas that are built in previously distressed areas of cities. Uh, I think of Baltimore and Washington specifically. Um, You know, Baltimore was built in the Inner Harbor, which is a great resource on its own. Mm. Uh, And Washington, uh, the Nationals built their stadium down by the Naval Yard uh, in the southern part of D.C., which, you know, was a rundown area. It was a place that, you know, folks just didn't really go very much. Uh, And the development around those two stadiums within the last, Kim Yard's case, 25 years, and in Washington's case, 10 years, is vast. And there's no guarantee, there's no guarantee that putting a stadium in a place is going to generate revenue on its own. But what it does is it serves as an anchor for businesses. It says, we're going to be here. We're investing here. Come with us. Open your business around us. And for folks who say, well, the state was going to put up $26 million and Pawtucket was going to put up eighteen. Why not just spend that money anyway on downtown Pawtucket and on the Apex site and revitalize it? You have no centerpiece for right. it. That money would be completely wasted. There's no reason to go to the middle of Pawtucket or to go to the Apex site, which have been barren for years and years and years, mm-hmm. without putting some sort of centerpiece 
there. And that's what that stadium would have been. And I think Don Grebian knew that better than anybody else. He loses the Paw Sox from a highly industrialized area around McCoy Stadium, which couldn't be expanded. You couldn't have any more local business come in. It's surrounded by warehouses and residential area. Uh, Their hands were tied in terms of improving McCoy and the area around McCoy. This called for a fresh start, and really it would have been a fresh start for Pawtucket as well. I think he knew that, and I think that's why he fought so hard for this, and I think that's why he, among anybody else, will be the most disappointed person today. You know, that's a that's a, a good point about uh, Pawtucket and the current McCoy, and I, and I hear that all the time. Why don't they just stay where they are and rehab the uh, the state? First of all, it would cost about eighty million dollars to rehab McCoy and get it up to modern day standards and codes. And secondly, even if you were to do that, you still have a stadium in the middle of a residential neighborhood that you really can't have any development around. You know, and that's not anybody's fault. I mean, McCoy was built back in the 40s, I believe. Uh, you know, and, and um, it just, you know, th- things were different then when, in terms of urban planning. Um, what teams are doing all over the, all over the country uh, is exactly what you said. They're building stadiums as anchors for districts that then attract further development. Well, there just just isn't room for that where the current McCoy Stadium is. So they really had to move if they want a new stadium. Uh, you know, and, you know, selfishly, I was hoping they would move somewhere else in Pawtucket or at least in Rhode Island. Um, uh, but, you know, they, uh, they took what they felt was a better deal. And we're seeing uh, some artist renderings now coming across social media now that the embargo has lifted uh, 2 o'clock here on Friday. Uh, the new stadium in Worcester, there's been a letter of intent signed between the Paw Sox and Worcester City officials. Total package will be 86 to $90 million, which was comparable to the cost Very here close. in Rhode Island. Yep. Uh, there will also be a hotel built. Uh, in the Canal District in Worcester, something that's badly in need of development. Uh, it will open in March 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll have the Paw Sox here for two more seasons, uh, and that will be that. Uh, and obviously, you know, over those next two seasons, you can only imagine the, the sort of poisonous environment that will be around McCoy Stadium, yeah. around the team, in the fan base. You hope that in 2020 some nostalgia will kick in and, and maybe you'll have some sort of a good feeling around the team. But yeah. uh, you can only imagine what it will be like for the rest of this year and for the majority of the next two years. It, it's The sadness, really, Bill, is just beginning here in my Yeah, mind. yeah. And, you know, and I, um, and not to sort of beat this thing uh, with, with even more bad news, but I, I really have a hard time believing they, they'd even stay for two more years. I understand that the lease says that, um, but I wonder if there is some you know, mechanism for a buyout or anything like that. Uh, they'd have to find a place to play, obviously, because the stadium in Worcester wouldn't be ready right away. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be a sad day when they, when they actually do move out uh, of Pawtucket for the last time. Uh, so anyway, with that, we should probably turn our attention to the Red Sox because that's what this podcast is purportedly about. Um, and the Red Sox are, well, they're, they're still rolling along. Uh, they are 10 and a half games up in the American League East. They're 86 and 36. And um, looking back on the last week or so, uh, sort of want to look back on Chris Sale's start uh, on Sunday coming uh, off the DL. Uh, you know, kind of uh, a limited start. I think he only threw like 68 pitches or so. 68 but, pitches, yep. But it was... Um, 
you know, I, I understand it was, it was against the Orioles, but uh, he did not uh, disappoint. Looked like he uh, he benefited from that little bit of a, of, of a breather. Allowed one hit and struck out twelve of the sixteen batters he faced. Not bad. Is that good? I guess it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, right? Uh, no, he was excellent uh, and so encouraging for the Red Sox in terms of the fact that he came out of it healthy and is going to be able to make his next start on Sunday after a nice long rest. Uh, you know, going to have a full six days in between. That's what the two off days this week afforded him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, we've spoken about it all year, Bill, how important this guy is to their chances going into October, how important it is to sort of preserve him, uh, you know, over these next. I guess six weeks now. Wow. Season's come by quick. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very important that, that he is able to feel like he can perform the way he's performed throughout 2018 when he takes the ball for that first start in October. And, you know, I think everything that we saw Sunday, he checked every single box in terms of his health, uh, you know, in terms of how he would bounce back from the left shoulder inflammation, uh, and in terms of just looking like the dominant guy that he's been all the way along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, you wonder if uh, if this lead holds up at 10.5, if maybe they figure out a way of giving him another another break here down the stretch um, as they head into uh, head into October, because it's certainly uh, done done wonders. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing with Sale, obviously we've said it many times on the podcast, is um, he's got to be at full strength come October. That that's when it matters most. No, absolutely right. And you know, I mean, that's you. You wonder, you wonder what this rotation would look like if there was a diminished version of Chris Sale who who couldn't necessarily help you in October. It's a sad it's looking sight. Scary. Right? Yeah. You know, it, it's certainly not a team that would be fifty games over five hundred. Right. I can say that. Uh, you know, just just his presence, though, out there, just the way he goes about his work, the way he competes, uh, he brings a certain attitude to that rotation, to that team. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, and I and I think it it's certainly missed when he's not there and not pitching. Uh, and I think it's something that sort of feeds into the rest of, of the staff. I mean, you're looking at uh, a starting rotation right now that has the best ERA in baseball since the All Star break. Uh, you know, and that all starts at the top with Chris Sale, with David Price, with Rick Porcello, and goes right through the rest. Uh, speaking of David Price, he pitched on Saturday in the actual Twin Bill. We get to have a Twin Bill on the Twin Bills podcast. We did. Uh, there, there aren't many of them these days. Uh, Thankfully, because it was a long day. <laughs> I'm sure it was. It was. Yeah, if you're there uh, covering it, I, I guess uh, I guess it certainly made for a long day. And, and that was on the heels of 19-12 uh, to 12 on Friday night. Ah, that's right. Uh, that's right. So, yeah. A long day, to say the least. But a a four-game sweep uh, by the Red Sox, I believe, in Baltimore. It was. And, um, you know, Price uh, and Velasquez combined to get those two wins. Um, well, I'm not sure if Velasquez actually got the win or not, but uh, they both won those games, right? Yeah, but it was more the bullpen yeah. uh, who helped out Velasquez. And you know, David Price threw six innings in his start. He was very good. The tough part for the Red Sox was that was the longest stint thrown by any pitcher in those four games. The bullpen threw 22 and a third innings mm. uh, on the weekend and you know, was really taxed. I, I know Alex Cora made reference to the chart that he gets before every game from the training staff and from pitching coach Daniel Lavangie. And it has you know, like a stoplight, green, yellow, and red. 
the guys in green can pitch. The guys in yellow, you want to try to stay away from. Mm-hmm. And the guys in red just not available. Are not available. Mm-hmm. And and like he said, you know, going into Sunday that Baltimore series, and then the two games with Philadelphia. There's a lot of yellow and red mm-hmm. on that chart, and they desperately needed the scheduled off days on Monday and on Thursday. Uh, but for the bullpen to to throw 22 and a third, pitch to a 2.82 ERA in that span and actually be able to get 19 outs on Friday when Nathan Uvalde ran into trouble in the third inning. Right, which was the first time we saw him kind of hit a, hit a rough patch here as a, as a Red Sox. And then they got 19 outs again on Saturday when Hector Velasquez was forced to make a spot start. He went two and two-thirds. Then you got another 12 outs on Sunday. Chris Sale was limited to 75 pitches. He only threw 68. Um, you know, really, those guys were in the red zone pretty deep mm. uh you know so for them to sort of persevere and go seven t- seven and two on the road trip I, I thought was a pretty good effort absolutely yeah um, and uh you just mentioned seven and two it was another solid road trip they had monday and thursday off they went to philly they split the series and the two game series in philly um let's touch upon uh porcello for a minute who another who had another really solid outing yeah, he was very good in Philadelphia. Uh, two hits allowed and a, a two to one win. Uh, also hit another double. Uh, That's right. Which, yeah, you know, was uh, uh, certain and, and had that uh, head first slide into second base, uh, which certainly had some hearts <laughs> fluttering. Sure, Cora was dugout. thrilled. Yeah, uh, Alex Cora called the slide awful. Um, <laughs> said when Porcello started to set his feet and, and dive into second, his reaction was, "Oh God." Uh, you know, wasn't necessarily something you want to see the guy do. But, you know, as I wrote uh, the next day, I, I think it's just an indicator of how competitive a guy Porcello is and how competitive a guy professional athletes are in general. Uh, you know, that that wasn't something that he planned. He wasn't thinking, I'm going to round first and dive head first into second because it looks cool or, right. you know, it's what I should do. Uh, that was just instinct taking over there. And, you know, I, I also thought, Porcello's comments after the game, um, you know, to me, were a bit surprising in how candid he was his praise of Sandy Leone. It's not necessarily something that you hear pitchers say every day uh, when Porcello comes out without any sort of qualification and says, he's the best catcher I've ever thrown to. He makes the pitching staff better. Uh, the numbers back up his assertion, but still, something very surprising and not something maybe as frank as you're used to hearing from people. Right, and, and you had a, a piece about that in today's Providence Journal. And, uh, yeah, Leon has, has really sort of become a surprise on this team, I think. Uh, you know, I don't think there was a lot of expectations when the Red Sox got him from the Washington Nationals, whatever it was, uh, three years ago maybe? Uh, it was 2015, and, okay, and yeah. actually the Red Sox designated him for assignment. Oh, that's right. In the middle of that season. That's right, yeah. He cleared waivers and went Man, to Pawtucket came back, and, yeah. and was called back. Uh, in September, when rosters expanded to 40, mm-hmm. he signed a minor league contract for 2016, was promoted in June of that year, and has never looked back. Right. And, uh, yeah, his handling of the pitching staff really has been fantastic. And, you know, you know, he's not a great hitter, but every now and then he surprises you with a little bit of power, and they seem, they seem to be very timely hits. Well, they're 28-3 and three in his last 31 starts, which that's sort of serial winning. You, you just don't see... Right. In Major League Baseball, you you might see that in high school. Right, you know maybe a, a a really powerful college program might be able to go off on a twenty eight and three stretch, uh, but you know, to have that happen in professional baseball, it's just very unlikely. And if you look at what Leon has done to opposing hitters from behind the plate, 
Uh, starting in 2016, their OPS with him catching. Now, obviously, a lot of this credit goes to the pitchers and sure. to the defense. Um, but he starts the play mm-hmm. by calling the pitch. Uh, 2016, it was 706, which is below league average. 2017, 692, which is also below league average. This year, 636 wow. in 65 games, which is putrid. That That's like a light-hitting second baseman. Right. Uh, that's That's... An OPS that you would expect to have, say, a utility infielder, um, you know, and that's all opposing hitters in in outings that he's caught. Um, so I think that speaks a lot to his game calling, uh, the confidence pitchers have in him, the way that they execute with him behind the plate, um, how comfortable he makes them feel. Uh, you know, I don't think any of those things can be underestimated. These guys have great stuff. They're not in the major leagues without great stuff. But there's a lot to be said for not having to think, just having to throw to the target, sort of manage your way through and, and be steered through by a catcher who you have full faith in. And I think right now that's Sandy Leone. Sure, sure. I mean, Chris Sale never shakes off a catcher and certainly doesn't shake off uh, San Leone, and uh, he's been doing pretty good. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the Red Sox won that first game in Philadelphia, and uh, things didn't go so well for the uh, for the second game. Uh, it was close, and then the bullpen happened. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I think I think there's a discussion to be had there uh, in terms of the bullpen. The second game in Philadelphia, it's a 3-3 tie in the sixth inning. Uh, due to the National League rules, the Red Sox pinch hit for Nathan Yavaldi with a couple men on. They bring up Steve Pierce. He hits a ground ball to the hole at second base, was called safe, and it was overturned. Right. Uh, would have given the Red Sox the lead. That was a critical point in the game. The Red Sox go to Joe Kelly at 3-3. Um, he gives up a leadoff triple to Wilson Ramos, who killed Boston. Uh, who always has. And, uh, yeah. and always has. Yeah. Uh, killed Boston on Wednesday night. Um, gives up the lead. It's Well, actually, gives Philly the lead. It's 4-3 after the sixth. And then Boston went to Drew Pomeranz in the seventh in a 4-3 game. And Cora said after the game he wanted to see how Pomeranz would perform or could perform in a high-leverage situation. And, you know, the obvious answer was it didn't go well. Uh, he gave up three runs in the seventh. It ends up being a 7-3 lead. Boston scratches one back in the eighth and makes it 7-4. I think it's important to point out that coming off the weekend in Baltimore with so many guys who are either unavailable or sort of on the fence, Matt Barnes being primary among them, um, Alex Carr was managing that game as you would in a 162-game schedule, not in a seven-game schedule. He's not going to manage his bullpen in that fashion in October. In my mind, it's very unlikely that Joe Kelly or Drew Pomeranz will throw a meaningful pitch in a game that is close, whether it be 3-3, 4-3, or otherwise. And so I think a lot of the hand-wringing that's done about the Red Sox bullpen up to this point, some of it is justified. I think some of it, though, is wasted energy because a lot of the guys who who are the quote-unquote whipping boys out there for the fan base, you're just not going to see in October. It's not going to happen. So you're thinking that in the playoffs, uh, the bullpen is really going to be maybe three guys or four guys, essentially, uh, Kimbrell, Barnes. Hembry. Maybe Heath Hembry and, and, you know. Maybe Ryan Brazier. Right, okay. 
you know, Brazier, who's been sure. very good for who them. Has been who's, good. Yeah. You know, yeah. 37 appearances combined right. between Pawtucket and Boston since May 12th. He's given up two earned runs. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's been outstanding and mm-hmm. sort of power right-handed guy with a slider, uh, the type of guy who gets strikeouts and swings and misses. And that's the type of guy I want pitching in the postseason mm-hmm. uh, because I don't want contact. Uh, you know, you could give up three ground balls in a run, and the game could be over. It'd right. be two to one. Right. Um, you know, but I, I also think that you know you need to look at what Houston did last year, and Boston's certainly going to try and do this. You're going to have Sale, Price, Porcello start games. Sure. From there, could be Nathan Eovaldi, could be Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, could be Brian Johnson. Could be Stephen Wright if, if somehow he manages to have a remarkable resurgence here over the next six weeks. Mm-hmm. But the point to make is that that rotation is going to be cut to either three or four. And the guys at the back end are going to go in the bullpen and help. You'd love to bring Uvalde out of the bullpen, throw 97, 98. You'd love to bring Eduardo Rodriguez out of the bullpen, throwing 95 with the changeup and the cut fastball. Uh, so those guys are going to get some help. And I think you need to look at it in terms of over 162 games, you're going to have 12 or 13 guys on a pitching staff at a given time. All of them might pitch mm-hmm. at some point. In a postseason game, you're going to have 12 or 13 guys on the pitching staff, but only seven or eight of them are going to get the ball. Right, right. Uh, well, you mentioned um, Eduardo Rodriguez, and the latest news is that he is going to be making uh, some a rehab start, or at least getting some rehab work. So. What are, uh, what are we hearing about him? Yeah, he's had two good sessions here uh, of simulated games. One was at Fenway last weekend. Uh, the other was uh, in Baltimore. Uh, sorry, in uh, Philadelphia the other day. Mm-hmm. I've lost track, Bill. These three-city road trips, you know. <laughs> well, it's the train. You I know. Don't, you know <laughs> today's Friday, right? <laughs> right. Is that Friday? Yeah. Um, he, th- he threw again uh, on Wednesday in Philadelphia. Looked good. 47 pitches, uh, four innings, encouraging signs facing you know the rehabbing Ian Kinsler, um, Blake Swihart as well. Uh, he's going to be sent to Portland for rehab start likely on Monday, mm-hmm. uh, barring any setbacks over the weekend. And you know, let, let's think back to the last time we saw Eduardo Rodriguez. It was the middle of July. He'd thrown 19 consecutive scoreless innings. Uh, he was dominating against the Blue Jays on a, on a weekend afternoon. Uh, went to cover first base and turned his right ankle. And you thought at the time that this could have been a, a lengthy absence. Uh, you know, he's obviously had an injury history. Um, you know, and and you don't necessarily want to mess with pitchers and their landing leg because if they're compensating in any way and hurt their arm then you're into a whole different set of problems mm-hmm. uh, but for him to be back to you know something approaching full speed at this point potentially throwing 65 70 pitches in a rehab outing he makes two or three starts with portland or Pawtucket, and he can ramp it up to 85 90 he slides back onto this roster after they expand to 40 on september 1st and he could certainly make an impact, not just down the stretch, but into October. Surprising, really, because I, I, I didn't think he'd be back this quickly. Now he's not back yet, but obviously all the, all the signs point uh, point that way. Uh, yeah, and he certainly could make an impact. Maybe it's in the rotation. Maybe it's that power arm out of the bullpen. But uh, yeah, if you're a Red Sox fan, it's certainly encouraging news that he's as close as he uh, as he is. Uh, so speaking of injuries, uh, let's uh, hit on uh, Ian Kinsler. And uh looks like he will be back with the team uh, any moment. Yeah, uh, he was expected to be activated on Friday. Uh, and honestly, the Red Sox are, are entering a point now where activating Kinsler or anybody else is going to force them to make a difficult decision. Um, you know, in this case, uh, I had someone ask, uh, 
you know, what you think is going to happen. What do you think they're going to do? Um, the dubious fake DL stint <laughs> is always a possibility. Right. Um, you know, generally because you only have two weeks left before the rosters expand. Right. You don't want to designate someone for assignment and at this point right. because if they get claimed on waivers, you lose them. Yep. Um, you know, you also you run into a point where. How much damage are you going to do to a player mentally if you option him at this point? I know Brandon Workman was optioned the other day out of Baltimore. He wasn't necessarily happy with it. Um, you know, if you option Hector Velasquez, who still has them, uh, you know, what does that do for him mm. going forward? When you bring him back in September, will he be the same guy? Is he going to be on the same sort of pitch plan in Pawtucket? Is he going to be getting that regular work so that he's stretched out to three or four innings and you use him in that long relief role? Right, right. Um, you know, so you're you're trying to make real roster decisions here with an eye on September 1st. It has nothing to do with August 17th, trying to activate Ian Kinsler. You're trying to buy time now for the next two weeks until September where basically you can do whatever you want. Yeah. By that point, and the fact that you have a ten and a half game lead helps because you know you're not hanging on uh, on every win and loss at this point. You do have a little bit of a cushion, or, or, or you know, a bigger cushion. Uh, isn't it shocking that we're it really sitting is. here ten yeah. and a half games and the Yankees can't beat the race? What, what's what? <laughs> I mean, right. this is amazing. Right. Well, you know, the Yankees. I think uh, I'd have to look this up, but I think they're seven and three in their last ten games, or something like that, or close to it, or you know, I don't know, maybe six and four, but whatever it is. You know, it's not good enough because they still lost ground to the Red Sox in the, over the last uh, since the uh, since the four game sweep. Yeah, think about that. Yeah, right. They've they've lost a couple games over the week, <laughs> over just a week. Right. That's that's how hot the Red Sox yeah. have been. And you know, the Yankees, to be fair, have really missed Aaron Judge. And, and I think that yeah, was, absolutely. That, who, who's not as bad? Who's not uh, coming back as soon as uh, Yanks Yankee fans had had hoped? Well, you you know, uh, I don't know if I said this to you off air or, or on a previous podcast. That three week time frame was a load of hog wash from the start whether it's a chip fracture or, or whatnot you do that to your wrist it's your throwing wrist it affects the way you hit you're just not going to feel normal mm-hmm. uh, you, they might say that you're healed in three to four weeks but you're not going to feel normal for six to eight weeks you can double the time um, you know so can Aaron Judge come back in September be a factor the last two weeks find something approaching his normal form going into October uh, because the Yankees desperately need him. I, sure. I mean, you look at what's going on there. Uh, you know, they've had two very difficult games against the Rays where they haven't scored runs. Um, and just his presence alone in right field in that lineup uh, makes a huge difference for them at the top of the order. Yeah, Forget the Yankees. I need him. He's on my uh, fantasy team, oh, and he's boy. killing me. Oh, anyway. boy. Here we go. How selfish. <laughs> think think of him instead. We should, How do, we should do a separate podcast just on our uh, fantasy teams. On our, no one wants to hear about our fantasy teams. Uh, they, so, they'd hear nothing but complaints from that, Well, me. that's true. That's you and true. I play Deservedly the, so. You and I play in the same league. Right. You know how bad I am. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, looking ahead here, the Red Sox welcome uh, in the uh, Tampa Bay Rays. I want to say yes this weekend, and then um, and then the Cleveland Indians next weekend. Uh, so, and Tampa is one of those scrappy teams that you just you know you can't really overlook. I mean, I know in the standings they uh, they're far behind, but uh, you know they they figure out how to how to give teams fits. Yeah, they they've been a hard time for everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously that starts at the top with Blake Snell, who's back off the disabled list who threw wonderfully against the Yankees right. uh, on Thursday. You know, only five innings, but I think he only gave up one hit in that game, and, and Tampa's bullpen was able to get them over the finish line. Uh, you know, Tampa is, is sort of gaming the system here with the opener. 
uh, which is <laughs> right. You know, sort of a the reverse bullpen. Uh, yeah, so to speak, it's, right? it's it's sort of a, a you know a, a little bit of a phase. I, I almost liken it to the Wildcat offense. Right. Uh, it's here. It's somewhat effective, but I don't think it has long term shelf life. Uh, that being said. It has somewhat worked for them to this point, and I do think that for at least one or maybe two turns through the order, it might make life a little difficult for opposing hitters simply because you're facing a different guy each sure. time. And you know, there's a, a certain comfort level there that attaches when you face someone twice or three times or even a fourth time. You can look up the numbers and, and the averages and the slugging percentages against. There's a reason why managers are quick with the hook, uh, especially in the postseason, coming up with that third time through the order and especially through the fourth time. You, you, don't, you don't see a starter go through that unless it's someone absolutely dominant. Right, right. Uh, you know, so Tampa has sort of they've sort of projected that out over a full season and, and they've sort of run arms in and out whether it be Ryan Yarbrough or Jose Alvarado or Ryan Stanek who, who starts on Friday night um, you know I don't necessarily think it's an effective long term strategy but I give Kevin, Kratt, uh, Kevin Cash mm-hmm. and their front office some credit for making the most of what they have I, I think they've done a pretty nice job you know sort of being competitive there in the middle of the American League East pack yeah I mean they're you know they're over 500 they're 62 and 59 if, and if it wasn't such a crazy good years for the for the Red Sox, you know that they may even be, uh, you know, in contention. Uh, you know, obviously it doesn't cut it this year, but uh, they're they're three games over and they're twenty three games out in the <laughs> loss column. It's unreal. It's yeah. absurd. Yeah. It's unreal. Uh, so anyway, looking ahead here, uh, the Red Sox, as we said, have the have the Indians uh, for uh, four games here, and then I think three games there. Uh, yeah, that's in September, right? Last uh, road trip of the year, and uh, they still have the Astros for three games. I want to say the Astros come here for three, and they have the Yanks for I want to say two more series. They are uh, at the Yankees in and, September, and then they're here at and the then end. The Yankees are right. here the last three games of this season. So you know, a couple of months ago, you might look at the uh, the remaining. Uh, month and a half of the schedule and say, oh boy, it's going to be nip and tuck in a dogfight. But, you know, the Red Sox are going into this with a ten and a half game lead and, you know, I, I, it just sort of sucks some of the drama out of it, doesn't it? Yeah, they've definitely built a margin for error here. Uh, you know, I, I would still be interested to see how they perform because those are going to be their playoff peers. Absolutely. Whether yeah. it's the Indians, the Astros, the Yankees, those are all teams You're going to see these teams again. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if things end the way they they are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Houston is, is on a big-time backslide yeah. uh, at this point. They're, they're really struggling. They got swept by the uh, Mariners at home. They, they've had a couple injuries. Yep. Uh, you know, their, their starting rotation has had a little bit of a hard time. Charlie Morton, in particular, got off to a really good start. Uh, you know, and, also and, on and, my fantasy team, an elite start. Right. Uh, you know, I think he was nine and zero or nine and one at one point, uh, and, and has sort of regressed a little bit here over the last month or so. Um, Houston's still a very good team. I expect to see them at the end. Cleveland's going to run away with the American League Central because the rest of that division is dreck. You right. can look up the standings on your own time. <laughs> uh, and the Yankees, for all of their problems, are still twenty five, thirty games over five. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're having a very good year, and it's just you know, in uh, when you hold them up to the Red Sox this year, obviously they, they, they pale. But you know, sure. It's still a very good year for the Yankees, and they're doing it obviously without Judge and Sanchez hasn't been. He's not in the lineup, and he hasn't been having a good year. And you know, now Sabathia's on the DL right, as well, right? Uh, you know, with right knee inflammation, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but certainly those series against those clubs are, are going to be interesting to watch in terms of how the Red Sox match up, and you know whether or not they could take two out of three here or there, or you know split a four game series here or there. Uh, you know, and I, I also think that. Um, 
you know, going down the stretch, the good thing for Boston is this last road trip was their final three-city road trip of the year. Hmm. You're going to see the majority of these games at home, especially at the end. They play 15 of the last 21 at Fenway Park. The only road trip they take is to go play three at the Yankees and three at the Indians. It's going to be a tough trip. Um, But it is going to be nice to see them sort of home, rested the last three weeks of the season. You know, if they're still nursing a big lead, they could sort of settle into the comforts of of Fenway and Mm. sort of get prepared to stay there for a while because they'll be opening the playoffs there for sure. Uh, you know, and it'll be nice. It'll sort of be the ideal finish for them instead of having to scramble and maybe play seven of the last ten on the road and, you know, maybe needing six or seven wins down the stretch. This really sets up probably the most favorable conditions that they could have asked for at the start of the year. So no excuses is what you're saying. No, not at all. And and I think, you know, it's it's important, you know, just to see whether or not they can perform the way they have over the first 122 games over the last 40 and then into Mm -hmm. the postseason. As we all know, and we've known this for a while, probably a couple months at least, uh, the referendum on this team will be in October. Absolutely. uh, Especially after the last two seasons. And I think they've shown us enough to make us believe that not only can they be successful in October, but they should be. Uh, It's going to be difficult to wait the six weeks to see if they actually will be. Right. As a good friend of mine says, you know, 115 wins or whatever they end up with really will amount to a hill of beans if it's just another quick exit in in October. That's right. Uh, So uh, we will be watching as we always do. Uh, Bill, thanks again. Uh, My pleasure, Bill. And uh, we will be uh, doing this again a week from now. Thanks.